Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and president of the Kennedy Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording May 19th, 2022, you'll hear a panel discussion on the Maritime Dimension of Continental Defense, featuring our fellows Timothy Choi and Adam Lajeunesse. Mark Mess from the Canadian Coast Guard, retired Commodore James Clark, now with Lockheed Martin, Canada, and moderated by our fellow retired Vice Admiral Mark Long. This conversation is an excerpt from our recent conference on modernizing continental defense, which was made possible thanks to the support of the Department of National Defense's Mines Program, our strategic sponsors, Lockheed Martin Canada, General Dynamics, Irving Shipbuilding, and Davy Shipyard, the conference title sponsor, L3 Harris, and its bronze sponsor, Raytheon Technologies. Good morning, uh, everybody. Bonjour à tous et à toutes. Um, yes, a very esteemed panel. Look to my left. I am not part of the esteemed category. Uh, I'm just simply here to try and moderate uh, what we hope is a really interesting and informative discussion. Um, the names are there. Uh, I'm going to go from my left across. Jamie Clark, a retired naval officer and submariner. Yeah, that's very important. Uh, now working for Lockheed Martin. Uh, to his left, Adam Lajeunesse, uh, esteemed question asker from the last panel, and more importantly, a published author and uh, highly respected academic uh, in the domain of uh, maritime Arctic affairs. Mark Mess basically runs the operational wing of the Coast Guard, and very happy to have him here with us because um, he has a full-time job and uh, um, is always—it's uh, always uncomfortable as a government official to be on one of these panels because you're fearful that the moderator's going to ask you a really embarrassing question that you can't answer. So I've already told him I will, um, and uh, we'll take it from there. And at the end, Tim Choi, uh, academic uh, and uh, prolific writer on naval affairs uh, out of the University of Calgary. And uh, I think that's pretty much it, eh, team? We can, uh, we can kick things off. So I, I'm not exactly sure what uh, Dr. Perry wants out of this panel, um, but I am fearful that we're going to degrade into a discussion about shopping lists of capability, um, which may be very interesting from an industry perspective, but I'm not sure that that's the right uh, forum here today. And so I'm going to try and keep it a little more strategic, if we can, um, and pick up on some of the threads uh, that have already been laid out. But clearly, uh, we've heard this morning uh, the concepts of multi-domain, pan-domain. We've heard about digitization. And we had a great discussion before the break about the threat. So we're going to try and focus that a little more into uh, a maritime-specific context. And um, the kind of get a sense of uh, recognizing that it is multi-domain, um, but we're going to talk about one of the domains. Um, and uh, as we all know, um, the continent is surrounded on three sides by large volumes of salt water, which historically has always worked to our advantage because it isolated us from the rest of the world and uh, made it less interesting for people to want to come into our own backyard. But we heard in the last panel that there's an increasing interest in our shared backyard. Um, so we're going to unpack some of those uh, aspects. And I, I'm going to randomly um, start things with kind of the open-ended question, why does all this matter? Why do we care? Um, beyond uh, potential 
industrial or economic advantage beyond the threat, um, why should the average Canadian uh, really care about continental defense in general, but more specifically, why is the maritime component of continental defense uh, such an important uh, aspect of this conversation? So, Adam, what do you think of that? Why does defense matter? Well, at least it's an easy question. Uh, <laughs> from an Arctic perspective, um, you know, I don't think it's ever stopped mattering. It's never not been important. But what we're seeing today is an extraordinary increase in the complexity. During the Cold War, the danger was very real, but the complexity wasn't really there. We knew, we knew who our adversary was. It was state-based. It was the Soviet Union. We knew the capabilities they had. We knew the, the tools at their disposal. We knew what the political challenges were from a Canadian perspective that often meant you know, questions of sovereignty. But the main adversary in that realm was our best friend. It was the United States, and those disputes were very well managed. So fast forward that to today, and what continental defense and Arctic defense looks like has become so much more diffuse. We've been talking about multi-domain, but now it spreads across the spectrum of safety, defense, and security. So it's no longer just a question of hypersonic cruise missiles or submarines, although it is. We're also now adding new actors. The Chinese, for instance, Tim and I have written recently about the potential for Chinese submarines in the north, if you're interested. But it stretches beyond that conventional defense question. Um, maritime militia, illegal Chinese fishing fleets, all sorts of those hybrid gray zone threats that we heard from on the last panel, they're not, a, they're not in the Arctic right now, but there's no reason to believe that they will not spread into the north. Uh, we now have salmon showing up at Cambridge Bay. <clears throat> so 10 years from now, how do we react when a large fleet of Chinese quasi-state-run fishing vessels come into the Arctic? That adds an extraordinary degree of complexity. Questions of sovereignty, it used to be very well managed because we had this state-to-state -state relationship with the United States. Uh, this year, we had a Chinese fishing, pardon, fishing, a sailboat coming into the Northwest Passage. He didn't make it, but he tried. Manned by a gentleman with a history of personal freedom of navigation operations. How do you manage that? That is much more complex to manage than a prime minister and president talking about, say, the Polar Sea or the Manhattan. So you've got this increasing degree of complexity, a lot more actors, and a lot more requirements for situational awareness and for response. And that's only going to grow exponentially from here. Um, so Tim, you know, the, there's, there's two views on the military uh, aspect of, of uh, maritime activity. Uh, Adam just laid it out, you know, in terms of the graying, the, the hybridization, if you will, uh, of activity. From, from a military perspective, but not exclusively, you know, is there really a concern about um, the militarization, and particularly when we look at Russian and Chinese activity? Like, what, what's your take on all that? What, what do you think, what do you see emerging here? Thanks, uh, Mark, for that question. And kind of addressed in sort of a roundabout way. <laughs> um, and it 
you know, Adam just mentioned complexities of everything that's going on. And I'm gonna try to use a bit of traditional like naval and maritime theory. I know everybody probably hates theory, but um, to try to simplify things down to something that's more organizable in a more basic framework. And it's the notion of sea control, right? To make use of the oceans and deny the use of it by others if they're behaving in a way that you do not like. Um, and so, but what are those uses of the seas? Um, you know, we always think about, you know, navies, what do they do? They fight other navies. They, um, you know, they go attack, they defend, they contest each other um, on the seas. But, you know, at the end of it, that's not what, that's not the point of it, is to make use of the oceans either during or after that contestation. So the exercise of the control that you gain, that's what's important. And so what are, you know, at least in the general theory at this time, you know, there are four basic uses of the seas, and each of these things are their own particular um, character of threats that Canada and North America faces. And so the first one, I think the most obvious one, is this use of the seas as a medium of transportation. So getting goods from point A to point B, right, so shipping, trade, all that other good stuff, you know, 90% road trade by volume is on the ocean, so obviously that's vitally important. Um, you know, of course, Canada's major trading partner is the United States, you know, vast majority of it goes down there, but then the United States also, also trades of the world, so even if the vast majority of our trade isn't on the oceans, it eventually involves the oceans. So being able to ensure that, you know, our trade goods actually make it, you know, across the world uh, for, for ensuring our um, economic stability, um, security, and all that good stuff. It's very, very important. And then, of course, you can also use it to transport you know, military vehicles, military assets, um, you know, in support of operations abroad, which is a lot of what we do. Um, and then, of course, so, you know, use of seas as means of transportation. Secondly, as a you know, means of power projection, right, for landward attack from the oceans in order to, defense, to effect defense on the ground. And that's what all the discussion about hypersonic missiles and the theory of hypersonic missiles, you know, attacking North America, attacking Canada, that's where that comes from. And, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, the attack on, the latest attack on Ukraine has got people thinking, well, maybe this is now more likely. And to some extent, that's, you know, has much changed actually since before Ukraine in terms of the utility, the rationality of, you know, you know launching a sea-based strike against North America. Um, and I think the current thinking is that there may be a limited increase in likelihood of that in order to prevent or deter us um, in North America from providing reinforcements to, um, you know, uh, allies abroad. So that's one possible uh, scenario in which case, um, you know, that power projection from the sea is a threat to this continent. And of course, I'm not talking about just the Arctic, I'm talking about West and East Coast as well. And then thirdly, and that's probably my favorite one, is the use of seas as a resource, right? Fisheries, minerals, oil and gas, and all that stuff. And you have to remember that, you know, the only times in, you know, recent memory that, you know, NATO states have actually more or less pointed guns at each other, warships at each other, threatened the use of force against each other was over fish, right? The turbo wars in the 1994, um, you know, the Danes and the French, you know, up in Greenland and you know, the Norwegians and a bunch of some several <laughs> multitudes of actors, um, all of these involved the use of force or the threat of force um, against each other who are otherwise erstwhile allies, never mind you know, the Russians. Um, and you know, as Adam said, you know, the threat of fisheries um, moving toward north, uh, what's the future of that? Yeah, we have this central Arctic fishing moratorium that's signed on by China and all the major fishing states and us, but how long will that last? Um, do we, you know, 
right now, yeah, with the lack of science, sure, I guess, you know, not certain how you know, profitable that would be if you move your non-ice capable fishing fleets into ice infested waters, you know, it's not a very safe idea, so it'll take a while for that to happen. Um, but you know, the sign of that would be when you see um, the Chinese, um, you know, commercial um, shipbuilding industry, and that is a whole other story, um, you know, start building ice capable fishing vessels. And that's how you know, obviously, um, that they intend on going north and chasing the fish. And finally, the use of seas as a means of collecting information, right? So you, we heard a lot, I think, you know, not discussed so far, but you know, the undersea cables, but we've all heard about this. Um, and you know, we know the Russians, and to a limited extent, the Americans have the ability to go deep underwater to the seabed and just sort of interfere with those cables. The exact nature and character of that interference is not quite known, but you know, it is a means in which you know, that might pose a threat to our ability to receive accurate information and send accurate information abroad to where our forces or civilian um, actors need them. So do we need a means to defend against that, either at sea or on land where that happens, uh, where it you know, eventually reaches land? So yeah, those are my four ways of thinking about it. Okay. Um, Jamie, you've got, um, I mean, obviously you grew up as a submariner, uh, submarine command, but you, before you retired, you spent <coughs> some time in uh, NORAD, NORTHCOM, in the U.S. Uh, system. And so I'm curious, I, I know lots of the Air Force folks representatives spent a lot of time in the Americans, so I've got a kind of a double-edged question for you. One is, can you provide some insights from uh, your experience from an American perspective? How do they see the continent, um, particularly from a maritime defense perspective? And then, I probably don't even need to ask you, but would you also uh, comment on uh, the undersea domain as it relates to this, this problem that we're trying to get our heads around? Um, absolutely. Thank you. And I know this isn't about shopping lists, but I would be remiss in my submarine duties if I didn't say we need submarines, we need more submarines, and we need submarines <laughs> quicker. Um, and they need to be bigger and faster and carry more stuff. Okay. So, Check. So my membership in the club is protected for another year. Thank you. Um, I, I think in Canada, we have an incredibly privileged position in the world. Um, and a lot of that is due to our relationship with the United States. In fact, it was 61 years ago this week when President Kennedy addressed the parliament and, and said that geography has made us neighbors, history has made us friends, economics has made us partners, and necessity has made us allies. Um, that is really, really easy to take for granted. Uh, and you touched on it, we rely on deterrence by geography, and we have. Um, really since early 1814, when we, the U.S. Senate ratified the Treaty of Ghent, we have not had a domestic threat to Canada from a state actor. Um, but things have changed. Uh, now, for the first time in history, there is a below nuclear threshold um, risk to North America. Uh, a risk that can come over the pole in a traditional transpolar attack. Um, I would argue the pacing threat is, is from missile launching submarines in all three of Canada's um, ocean approaches. Our freedom of maneuver within North America and from North America is at risk, and that makes the United States incredibly nervous, and that should make us really nervous as well. Um, and I think national credibility is really important. And, and I'm going to quote a, a fleet commander that I worked for years ago. Um, credi <laughs> credibility. Um, say what you're going to do and then do what you say. 
and I think it's important to understand what we said. So I, I have my phone here, not because I'm expecting emails, but I wanted to read a quote and I wanted to get it right. Um, and, it, and it goes back to, to the summer of 1938. Um, when President Roosevelt was getting an honorary doctorate at Queen's University. Um, and as the world was moving towards the Second World War, he commented um, that he would stand with Canada um, and, and make sure that no, uh, no foreign entity um, could attack or invade Canada. Uh, and a couple days later, in which arguably may be the first defense against help, um, Mackenzie King said uh, in Woodbridge, Ontario, at a, at, a, at, a, at a speaking event, we too have our obligations as a good and friendly neighbour. And one of them is to see that, at our own instance, our country is made as immune from attack or possible invasion as we can reasonably be expected to make it. And that, should, should the occasion ever arise, enemy forces should not be able to pursue their way either by land, sea, or air to the United States across Canadian territory. Um, that's a commitment we made as a nation to the United States. Um, more recently, we've committed to a 2% GDP spending, uh, spending um, to meet our NATO commitments, and we continually um, fall short of that, uh, of that commitment that we've made. We've created an expectation amongst the United States. Um, we have a shared responsibility uh, for defense of the continent, and we need to live up to our fair share as can reasonably um, be expected. Um, and and if, you, if you'll allow me just for another moment, um, today's conversation, as you noted, is about the maritime uh, environment, which is a subset of the defense problem. Uh, that's managing our competitors' most dangerous COA. We've touched on gray and hybrid warfare, um, which is really the most likely COA of below threshold activity. Um, so there is a broader challenge for Canada that is beyond the Department of National Defense and the Canadian Armed Forces. Arguably, it's a, a whole of government, if not a whole of society problem. Um, in, in May of 2020, President Trump signed an executive order, um, which has since been put on hold and has since been reformatted by the Biden administration, um, to make the U.S. bulk power system more robust. Um, for made-in-U.S. solutions so they're not susceptible um, to nefarious foreign um, cyber activity. Uh, when I think back to the power failure in the summer of 2003 that started from a software bug in Ohio that allowed power lines to expand, touch foliage, and a cascading power failure through the entire U.S. Northeast, Ontario and Quebec that cost four to ten billion dollars in economic loss, um, in the final report, I look at how vulnerable are we outside of the defense environment to being a liability to the United States, and I can't help but question what the economic impact would be to our relationship if we be seen as a threat to the United States. So I think the expectation from the United States um, is, A, it's not all about Canada, and I hope that's not an epiphany to anybody in the room, um, but that we make ourselves a hard target, both above and below the threshold of armed conflict. Okay, well, thanks, Jamie. Um, a lot, a lot to process there, and uh, adds on really nicely to the pre two previous points. So, Mark, uh, you're the only one on the panel yet who hasn't had their first question. Um, you know, looking at at uh, the, the challenges, and they are enormous. They are both physically and geographically enormous. They're enormous from a, a perspective of capacity and capability. Um, as Jamie said, 
we have a tendency to oversimplify things uh, when we talk about integration, we talk about digitization, uh, we throw the words around. Um, I'm setting you up here. Uh, you can see it coming, get ready. Uh, but, you know, what is, what is the current state uh, of play, if you will, both in terms of um, real capacity, uh, activity, both um, what we would describe as friendly activity, um, what we describe as sort of neutral activity and, and potentially concerning activity, not just from a defense perspective, but more from a broader um, national security perspective. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Admiral, and, and uh, appreciate being on the panel. Um, I'm going to speak, of course, from a non-military perspective, uh, being Coast Guard, being the civilian fleet. Um, and, and the biggest challenge for us is, uh, is the significant change in climate. Um, we are seeing the, the Arctic ice melting three times faster than the global rate. With that, 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 that rate of, of climate change in the Arctic, what we're seeing is an increased amount of activity in the Arctic just from fishing vessels, tourism, cruise ships, pleasure craft, um, you know, fishing vessels uh, on the outskirts of, of the Arctic that I think will be, will be encroaching the Arctic as, as we see research, uh, commercial resupply, mining companies. That level of activity and presence in the Arctic is growing on a year-to-year -year basis. Part of it is just because there is less and less ice, but the ice is still there. People don't realize the ice is still there. It's a different type of ice. And that different type of ice creates a significant amount of risk for marine transport. And that's what people think will be ice-free by 2050. There still will be ice. It's a different type of ice. And to be able to navigate and provide that level of support. But with the increased traffic, some of the other risks that we are facing in Coast Guard and being a limited capacity and presence, presence from June to November is the increased risk in search and rescue, environmental response, particularly with cruise ships up there, the lack of charting in the Arctic. And so you have a lot of these people that come up to the Arctic, the adventurers, the small pocket cruisers that are going up there that really don't know where they're going. And so all of a sudden they say, well, that looks nice, we'll go there. It's not on the chart, we'll take a chance. And then all of a sudden we have a catastrophe on our hands or a crisis on our hands where we have to come and bring you know, the powers to bear to be able to, uh, to address that. Uh, the lack of infrastructure uh, we're now seeing, and, and that is. But there is also a responsibility for uh, the northern communities, the Indinges, the Inuit, the resupply, and industry's commitment, and, and it, it, it's about economy, and they want to be able to transport goods up to the Arctic, and they're relying upon Coast Guard to be able to do that. But if we have to redirect our efforts to other areas, like search and rescue or environmental response, which is huge in, in the Arctic, if there were a significant uh, ER event, you know, that is a challenge for us to be able to respond to. We, we would not be able to. We have ER caches up in the north, but if anything significant, um, it will be a significant event. Um, and so I think there's increased levels of, of expectation, including from an environmental perspective, including from a marine protected areas perspective. How are we going to monitor? How are we going to enforce this 
with all of the, this increased traffic. Uh, these areas, pristine areas, um, you know, that the government has seen fit, and rightfully so, to, to protect, we have to be able to enforce that. And how are we going to do that from a whole of government perspective? It's not D&D's role, it's not the Navy, it's not ours completely, but we have to look at it from a whole Government of Canada perspective. And we are seeing more, um, you know, that, that geopolitical interests in the Arctic by non-Arctic states. We're seeing more and more uh, of that presence in the Arctic, and that in itself is creating a challenge for us. So I, I think that this is a, a significant issue. Then the last piece is, are they now looking for the Arctic to do the, tran the transit? Not just necessarily commercial, but actually transiting to cut off time using the, uh, the Northwest Passage. Um, ICE is not ready to do that. We do have you know, a couple that are using the, that, that passage for the Arctic, but that in itself is, is a risk. Because what happens is they then call for support. They call for Coast Guard to provide icebreaking support. That takes us away from the other uh, responsibilities that we have to deliver in the Arctic, and that's, that's tough. We only have certain capabilities in the Arctic. You know, Coast Guard has 22 uh, icebreakers currently, of which we usually have seven to eight up in the Arctic season. And some of those are, of course, are heavy icebreakers that work up, you know, in the Western Arctic and, and even in the High Arctic. But they're also focused in on science and charting and resupply. And then you have this added pressure, Admiral, uh, uh, you know, of where, you know, we have to bring uh, you know, the, the, the powers to bear to be able to provide that level of support. And is that our responsibility? Is that also industries and the cruise ships? Should cruise ships be hiring their own icebreakers to go and take them across? Or will they rely upon Coast Guard? So these are questions and challenges that we are currently facing. This episode of Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by the men and women of the Halifax Shipyard. For 112 years, the Royal Canadian Navy has worked closely with allied nations around the globe. During the Battle of the Atlantic, Canada's Navy stood shoulder to shoulder with our allies. Many of the ships that Canada put to sea in World War II were built in Canada. That tradition lives on today in Halifax. Today, the Halifax Shipyard is one of the largest and most modern indoor shipbuilding facilities in North America. In Halifax, Canada's National Shipbuilder is building state-of-the-art ships for Canada's Navy and Coast Guard fleets and is increasing Canada's GDP by billions of dollars. Over 3,000 shipbuilders will build the new Canadian Surface Combatant for Canada at the Halifax Shipyard. The new CSC will be Canada's most advanced ship ever built and is the superior choice to protect and support Canadian sailors. The Royal Canadian Navy has always stood up for Canada's interests and stood with our allies to secure them. The CSC ensures our Navy has the tools it needs to take that legacy into the future. Defence Deconstructed is brought to you by Davy Shipyard. Founded in 1825, Davy is a premier builder of advanced specialized icebreakers and many other ships for the Government of Canada and the private sector. As Canada's longest established, largest and highest capacity shipbuilder, Davy has delivered many of the most pioneering vessels ever built in Canada. Davy generates thousands of good jobs and billions of dollars for Canada's economy. Through its work, Davy is helping to build a sustainable marine industry, combat climate change, defend sovereignty, support trade, generate exports, and unleash the potential of the communities it serves. Thanks, Mark. Um, so, you know, it's interesting in that first round, uh, and I hope you would agree, um, some recurring themes from what we heard earlier, but some new ideas, perhaps not new uh, at the macro sense, but new in terms of the conversation. 
And so, you know, one of the recurring themes is, is this notion of integration, the notion of information, the, the speed at which things are happening. We're not talking speed in terms of military, um, you know, uh, combat reaction, uh, defensive capability, We're, the speed at which the, the climate is impacting, the speed at which other players are starting to engage, the commercial activity, those kinds of things. So, the, so there, there's, a, there's an element of speed here. Um, I, I think one of the issues that, you know, is, is often discussed and, and not really touched on is the degree of integration. And I don't mean that in a uh, digital integration way. I mean it in terms of organizational um, pan-government uh, integration, how, how the, the different capabilities uh, in the toolbox are applied to the different situations. And then, you know, of course, we can't ignore um, the, the military component of this um, exclusively. So, look, Adam, I'm going to come back to you here. This, what about this idea of, um, you know, if, if, if we could take a blank sheet of paper and kind of recreate or create a whole new construct for how we would look at um, maritime security from a Canadian perspective um, and, and integrate all these different elements that, that we've been discussing. Um, is that a stupid idea? Is it a, is it a good idea? I don't care if it, if it is or it isn't, but I'm curious to know uh, from your perspective. Yeah. You know, I think if we had that blank sheet of paper, what we would write down on it is something very similar to what we have right now. So the whole of government integration is, is essential in the North because there's so little there in terms of Government of Canada assets, platforms, resources, when you have so much to do and it's so hard to get materiel up into the north, you need to share. From a, a CAF perspective, the, the military has a lot of the platforms. The military has a lot of the resources, but it doesn't have the mandate. The RCMP, Transport Canada Environment, has those mandates, but it needs that support. So the whole of government approach that we have identified as essential for the Arctic since 2006 is the right one. Now, the real problem is implementing that, and we have been trying to implement that with various degrees of success for quite a while. Uh, communication is still not perfect. Um, we had a, a, a Kiwi, a New Zealander, sail through the Northwest Passage uh, a, year, a year or two ago, and there were still communication issues between D&D and Transport Canada to try and locate him and convey information. Like we're still working on what we know to be the best, um, the best system, which is cooperative. Now the next stage, of course, has to be expanding that whole of government to a Canada-US partnership. So we are still working on breaking down departmental silos and building that communication, building that interoperability between D&D and Transport Canada Environment and RCMP. Now we need to expand that out and look at the Arctic more broadly and work with the Americans, certainly on situational awareness and information sharing, more so than we already are, but also potentially in the future, uh, reaction and response capabilities. That's my two cents on the matter. Oh, that's excellent, thank you. So Tim, at the risk of opening Pandora's box here and getting you onto one of your favorite topics, which is uh, platforms and platform capabilities. If it, working from the, 
the premise of the question that I put to Adam. Um, do we do we have the right tools in our toolbox, and are we buying the right tools uh, for the future, in, in your opinion, in terms of the current build plans uh, that are underway uh, for Canada? Pandora box, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess we'll start with the Arctic Patrol ships, you know, the Harry Wolf class that you helped ably shepherd into production. And, um, you know, I'm a big fan of them. There are people who say, oh, they're underarmed or, you know, they're not as good as some of the other countries' ships. And, you know, a lot of those things, you look more detailed. You talk to the right people. You talk to our Danish counterparts. You talk to the Norwegian counterparts. They're all very impressed with the Harry Wolf class. You know, they see them as significantly more capable ships, more um, appropriate for Canada's needs um, than if we were to simply buy off the shelf from them um, one of their own existing platforms. And, you know, but there's another aspect of that, which is I think we're a bit conservative in how we think about how we can use the Harry the Wolf class. And I'm thinking in particular of how the Danes use their new Rasmussen class. It's a much smaller vessel. It's under 2,000 tons. The Harry the Wolf is 6,700 tons, so much larger. Um, but the Danes use them for a limited amount of icebreaking to help open up the harbors, help, um, you know, get, um, you know, fishing activity sooner, a limited amount of, you know, resupply from commercial vessels um, in Greenland. And, um, you know, they're able to do that with these much smaller, much less ice capable platforms. And when Mark was talking about the limitations and the limited haul numbers available to the Coast Guard for Arctic operations, I'm thinking, well, you know, we have six to eight of these uh, Arctic officer patrol ships, including the Coast Guard ones that we built. That's a massive increase in haul numbers that are, you know, roughly available. Um, obviously, you know, heavy icebreaker captains, medium icebreaker captains will turn down their nose at them and say, well, you can't operate, you know, in the high Arctic. You can't operate, you know, across the shoulder season of, um, you know, the navigable season. And yeah, of course, but, you know, that's not the only time the Coast Guard has icebreakers operating in the north. So, you know, there are a lot of times where you don't need the full capabilities of medium or heavy icebreaker, and you can offload some of the easier, you know, less intensive tasks too. Um, you know, our AOPS. But of course, that requires a lot more integration, a lot more discussions between Coast Guard, uh, Fisheries, Oceans, Science, um, and the Navy on how to actually use these platforms, how to share their time between all these different uh, potential, um, you know, uses. Now on to the high-end platform, you know, Canadian Service Combatant. You know, we're talking about the new advanced hypersonic missiles, um, and there are ways of, you know, different ways that they can come and attack the continent. And of course, the novel thing about hypersonic missiles is not their speed. You know, ballistic missiles, they've had um, hypersonic speeds for, you know, decades. No, it's about, of course, their maneuverability, their ability to fly at, or, you know, fly at um, relatively low altitudes to reduce their reaction times because you can't see them um, coming from a long ways away. And so a lot of that means you have to actually be able to look down over the horizon so that a defensive um, vessel like the CSC can actually can, you know, react in time um, where necessary. And so, you know, one of the, you know, a lot of people talk about CSC in terms of, oh, how many missile cells do they have? You know, what particular type of, you know, you know phase array radar they have? But the most important thing, I think, is, you know, our decision to incorporate what the Americans call cooperative engagement capability. And this is basically where you can, um, you know, you have them, and since we're, in the Americans' case, you know, they have an F-35 with all these fancy sensors, fancy technologies, it's over the horizon, or at least flying far up overhead, um, and stealth capabilities means it's, you know, not very easily detectable. It can see a target coming in, 
well before the ship on the surface can see it. And so we have CEC, that engagement capability, be able to send the actual targeting quality data from the aircraft to the ship so that the ship can fire the missile to a point in space over the horizon where it can't actually see it on its own. And so that ability is absolutely vital in an age where we've got hypersonic missiles flying at you know, relatively low altitudes and coming in at extremely high speeds. Um, and this is absolutely vital for that ability to react. Now, the problem with that is that right now, from what I can tell, we haven't actually um, decided to purchase missiles that can do that. So, you know, this known as the standard missile six, um, that's the one that can do this fancy data linking, you know, passing off you know, the command and control from the ship to an F-35 and then um, attack a target from far out of sight. Um, and so that's one thing that, you know, if we can do, I would strongly suggest our Navy <laughs> uh, pursue um, for uh, future-proofing um, against those kinds of threats. Okay, I got you really excited there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I, and I knew it was coming. Um, so, you know, you covered the full spectrum from light-duty ice-breaking. Uh, to uh, high-end, you know, uh, uh, basically uh, either ballistic missile defense, uh, even though we don't like using that terminology, but that's kind of in that broader umbrella, whether it's hypersonic or not. Um, and, and so I'm going to split the next part into two, because uh, Mark, not to put you on the spot in terms of, you know, is is that a good idea or not? Look at it more broadly. I mean, you know, you talked about some of the 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 missions, the tasks that that uh, we have to perform collectively, and they cover like the broad spectrum from, you know, the, the very basic level support to commercial activity up to potentially enforcement. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, on that continuum and, and making better use of the capabilities we have. So I'll give you that part of the question. And then, Jamie, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put you back in your comfort, comfort space under the surface here uh, in a few minutes. But Mark, go to you. Thanks very much, and, and I want to build on uh, Adam and, and Tim said, and, and I think you're right, integration is, is critical, even from an operational perspective, and, and Tim is right. Um, you know, the, the AOPS can be seen as a force multiplier, not just from a defense perspective, but the delivery of, of some of the Government of Canada kind of commitments. Uh, you know, Coast Guard has been fortunate, the government has now funded and put in the fiscal framework uh, monies for fleet renewal. Um, so two new polar class um, uh, icebreakers, six program icebreakers, heavy icebreakers, 16 multi-purpose vessels, as well as midshore multi-mission vessels, all of which will be ice capable. Uh, in varying degrees. So we are taking an integrated approach in delivery of that. But we also are taking a modularity approach on the missions on those vessels, whereby we can switch off from search and rescue or ice breaking or charting or support to law enforcement, RCMP, and, and you know, uh, that, that was mentioned. And how we can be that, Coast Guard can be almost be seen as that instrument of, of, of national pro power, providing that operational flexibility to the broader Government of Canada perspective in using that integrated approach. Um, and, and I think that that's one of the key elements. The modularity, the integration, looking at this broadly from a whole of government perspective, I think is important, whether it's monitoring, information sharing, MDA. And that's something also that we're looking at in our new ships is how do we ensure, right now our ships kind of act as a silo. The Coast Guard's given a mission, it's given its command orders, off it goes and does its business. And that doesn't necessarily integrate from an information sharing, 
with the other ships. What we are building in is that, that ability to, to share information with the ships and with the land so that in a real-time information, everybody will have that picture. And that will help contribute to MDA. It'll help contribute to uh, information sharing. You also mentioned the U.S. Coast Guard and the U.S. particularly. Um, next week is the Canada-U.S. Coast Guard Summit in St. John's. This will be one of the key elements. They, of course, have their Arctic strategy. They, of course, have, I think, significant concerns of what's going on in the Arctic. We need to kind of look at it, not just from an integrated Government of Canada perspective, but an integrated Can-U.S. perspective on, you know, what we can do in support of not only civilian programs, but also from a defense perspective and how we can engage and move that forward. This is going to be, I think, the focal point over the next 20 years with regards to, you know, the challenges and also how we are going to position ourselves with a capability to be able to do this. Thanks. And also thanks to the RCAF for the uh, fly pass that we just <laughs> had out there. Um, rotary wing. Um, Jamie, so take us under the waves uh, if, you, if you would, um, because it's, a, it's an aspect of the maritime domain that I think is, is somewhat um, mysterious to many. Um, and, um, you know, if we look at this from the basic principles of knowing what's going on in your backyard and then being able to do something about it uh, if you choose to along the scale of reaction um, that we've been discussing. Kind of position that for, for everybody here today, if you would. Recognizing that we need more submarines. I, we get that. Okay, that's yeah. a given. Um, <clears throat> sure. Um, kind of hard to wrap up in a, in a short soundbite, but I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, First, it's not just about submarines. Don't quote me. Um, theater ASW is a team sport. <laughs> uh, theater ASW is a team sport. Um, getting custody of a competitor submarine, maintaining custody so you know where that submarine is all the time. That is nothing new. Um, what is relatively new is the pairing of submarine technology with cruise missile technology, which now makes anti-submarine warfare, not something that plays out sub-on-sub -sub necessarily in the depths of the ocean, um, but a capability that can affect Canadians at home today. Um, you know, it is open source now. There was an article recently or in the last year or two um, that quoted the commander of the U.S. Submarine Force uh, and the commander of Second Fleet talking about a 2018 Severed Vince deployment where they lost custody of that submarine in the Atlantic for several weeks. That's the Russian cruise missile submarine. Uh, cruise missile launching submarine, uh, which is <clears throat> um, was the first of the class. The second of the class has been launched, and there's a planned seven. Um, so below, below nuclear threshold kinetic capability that can lurk off our coast undetected. That should keep people awake at night. Uh, the, the, the series of sensors and capabilities required to keep custody, and I, I'm going to steal two pages from <laughs> from non-submariners, one from an Air Force uh, fighter pilot and one from a, from a U.S. Naval aviator. First, uh, Admiral Gortney, who is a commander in NORAD. And, and I think he summed up the problem space really, really well. It is technically more feasible and easier to shoot archers, not arrows. Um, so having custody of cruise missile launching submarines, being in a position where, if need be, you can 
attack a submarine before a missile launch is incredibly important. Uh, and, and then from other fighter pilot um, commanders of NORAD, for domain awareness, we need sensors from the seafloor to space to cyberspace. Um, and I would argue that that is modernizing IUSS, that is in-column sensors like submarines and their towed arrays, um, surface deployed sensors, um, maritime air, be it fixed wing or rotary wing. Uh, it is a real challenging pro problem. Um, that's why I would argue it is the pacing threat. It is the most difficult one. And it goes around NORAD's north facing history and provides the continent for the first time ever a 360 degree threat axis. Well, that's not a particularly rosy way to <coughs> wrap that's that up. That's why we need submarines. And, and all the other stuff, Yes. Uh, more importantly. All right, folks, um, I, I think it's time we open up the, the discussion to you and uh, be really interested to hear if we have some questions. I see a hand over here waving frantically. Um, so who's first? Yes, hello. Uh, this question comes to us from Twitter. So building off what Adam said about the government operation, do we have the roles and responsibility between the different Canadian fleets arranged properly? And does it make sense that this DCG doesn't contribute to deterrence in the North because it has no defense mandate, even though they will have most or most or the sea Canadian ships in those waters? Mark, I, I'm not gonna dump it on you immediately, okay? Because <laughs> I see you breathing a great <laughs> sigh of relief. Um, so, Adam, I'm going to kick that one to you, um, and, uh, and, and I may have an observation depending on what Adam says. So, Well, sure, I'll, I'll provide a short answer to give people more time to chip in there. I, I think yes. I think the short answer is yes, we do have the mandates uh, assigned properly. You have to remember, though, that uh, while the Coast Guard doesn't have a lot of enforcement uh, mandates, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have capabilities. You can put an RCMP officer aboard a Coast Guard ship and all of a sudden that's, that becomes an RCMP ship capable of enforcing laws. You can put Environment Canada personnel aboard, uh, inspectors to, to fulfill their mandates as well. The fact that a Coast Guard icebreaker doesn't have certain mandates responsibilities doesn't mean that it doesn't have a deterrence uh, capability and deterrence not in a military sense, but a deterrence in the sense you don't want people trespassing, you don't want people polluting. Uh, people need to know when they're in Canada's area of operations within the Northwest Passage and the archipelago, uh, there are people around. There are capabilities, there are platforms, there are, are ships in the area. Uh, so that is very important at a psychological level. The fact this is not terra nullius, this is not just a, an empty space. There, there are assets and capabilities that are very versatile that can be you know, multi-tooled depending on what the threat is. A very broad answer, but you know, the short version is yes. I think we are at least uh, heading in the right direction there. Yeah, and uh, Mark, unless there's something you wanted to add, I, I'll just want to pile on here because I, I think there's a couple of interesting elements in the question. The first one is uh, the explicit reference to deterrence. And deterrence um, you know, doesn't need to be uh, exclusively the domain of military capability. It, it, it's, it's national capability. Uh, arguably, uh, you could have economic deterrence. There's a number of different ways to deter uh, or, or shape or influence uh, the actions of others. Um, so so I, I'm glad that, you know, that that was kind of the essence of the answer. Now, I think the second thing I would add, um, not as the moderator, but as a former naval officer, 
um, is that, uh, you know, the, the structures are there. Um, and it, what, what I think is lacking, and, I, and, and I, I would like to think Mark would agree, is we don't necessarily practice them enough. We don't exercise them enough. We, we're, it's not as seamless uh, as it could or should be. And, and to use military parlance, at the tactical level, it always works brilliantly. Because you know what? You put sailors, aviators, whatever, you put them in a problem space, and they figure it out, and, and they get her done, as the saying goes. But as you move up uh, in, in the organizational frameworks that exist, it becomes more convoluted, it becomes more complicated. It's not as, it's not as seamless, it's not as natural. And, and to me, that's the area where, notwithstanding all of these really important things, but in the context specifically of that question, I think that's a significant area for improvement um, if we were to evaluate ourselves. I totally agree, Admiral, and I think Adam made a really good point. Although we don't necessarily have a specific mandate, we do have the authority under the Oceans Act to support any uh, any other government department action within the, with, whether it be at RCMP, uh, ECCC, uh, transport, or even if there is a requirement for the Navy to get on board a Coast Guard ship to get up <laughs> in the high Arctic because they may not have the capabilities. It's been done before, we, we work together, and at the cold face, that level of operational and tactical um, you know, engagement happens all the time. That is, and, and you're right, Admiral, at the higher levels, um, you know, that, that, you know that, um, that automatic, this has to be thought about, this has to be exercised, this has to be the first point of, of, of view as we kind of move forward is, is a critical element. But it plays a role, and again, it talks to the integration Coast Guard may not have a specific mandate, but it's the integration approach with the other departments. And if I could jump in really yeah. quickly, just a little short addition, that's what Operation Danook has been that's since right. 2007. Keep in mind, though, this is the this is the premier Arctic military exercise, the Canadian Armed Forces, the Canadian government more broadly. It is not planning and practicing to fight the Russians. This is a whole of government exercise every year to do exactly that, to, pr to practice that integration, that resource and communication sharing. Yeah. We're trying. Thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Robert Haig. I have a, had a question for the previous panel, and I'll repeat it to this one because I think it's equally relevant. And that is the status of the Northwest Passage, which Canada, I think in 1986, by legislation, drew straight baselines around the archipelago. The Americans opposed it then, and they have continued to oppose it. Uh, last uh, time they did it publicly was uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, uh, the uh, Secretary of State uh, for President Trump. Um, an American ambassador, Mr. Colucci, uh, publicly said that this was not in the U.S. interest to keep an international strait or recognize it as an international strait with the right of overflight uh, by military aircraft. So I'd be interested in, in what the panel might uh, say to that because it's relevant, I think, to the whole issue that you mentioned about the maritime defense or dimensions of uh, continental defense. Thank you. Okay, so I'm gonna let Adam go first, then Mark, if you wanna add anything. But before that, I, I can't help myself. I have <laughs> to say something, uh, which is what I would have said um, were I still serving in response to the question before I deflected to another expert to actually answer the substance of your question. We in the South have a romantic obsession with the Northwest Passage. We don't understand it, 
we see it through the lens of the modern history of tension over possession and use and, and to the essence of your question. And it is a great question and it is an important strategic question. Until Mark tells me I'm wrong, um, from a purely practical perspective, the Northwest Passage is akin to driving from Ottawa to Toronto via Highway 7 through Perth and all those other places. Okay, it'll get you there, um, but it's not a particularly efficient way to go from A to B unless in the context of the Northwest Passage you actually have or want to go from a specific A to a specific B. If you're talking about more glo global trade and global routing, it's, it's the, the Arctic route, which is the main sea route, which is the one that is becoming increasingly talked about. The Russian northern route is another issue, but I'm talking basically the 401 equivalent across the top of the pole, the polar route. Um, that's where the real commercial advantage is because when it happens, it will be relatively easier navigable water and it will reduce transit times from the Pacific to the Atlantic, depending on your A and B, by upwards of 2,000 miles. So we're talking a significant piece. But back to the essence of the question and Canadians' romantic obsession with the Northwest Passage, Adam, would you like to answer that part? Yeah, it's good to see you again, Robert. Um, I wrote a book on that. <laughs> <laughs> so the Northwest Passage uh, is Canadian historic internal waters. Uh, Canada's position in international law is very solid, but international law is somewhat ambiguous in this area. And the difference between our position and the American positions with respect to jurisdiction is at the end of the day, a difference of opinion as to how that international law is interpreted. Since the 1950s, we have agreed to disagree. We both recognize that our positions are mutually incompatible. Uh, there is no room for compromise on this one, on these rock-solid principles of either sovereignty or, from the American perspective, freedom of navigation. We've tried on three different occasions, huge rounds of negotiation, it, it hasn't worked out. And so the, the modus vivendi that has evolved has been a bit of an agreement to disagree because nobody wants to lose this debate, but no one wants, or at least the Americans don't necessarily want to win either. So no one has pushed this before Pompeo because the Americans recognize that the Northwest Passage as a historic, uh, pardon, as, a, as a, a, a strait used for navigation opens that region up to the Chinese, to the Russians. So there's a desire to keep that dispute frozen. I could go on with the details quite a bit longer. Now, Pompeo was um, a bit of a blowhard and that evolved from Secretary Richardson's, Secretary of the Navy Richardson's uh, original desire to push a freedom of navigation voyage through the Northeast Passage. And the Coast Guard have told me, the US Coast Guard have told me, well, we said to, we, we can't do that. We've got one uh, polar icebreaker that is likely to break halfway through the Russian transit. That gets very embarrassing. And so he changed his tune and said, well, what if we did it through the Canadian Arctic? And as the Trumpian official that he was, it was a very transactional uh, understanding of that relationship, that whole partnership between Canada and the US where this is, this fight is not fought, dating back to the 50s, that was kind of pushed aside and, and Pompeo and some elements within the US Navy 
started to push for this freedom of navigation voyage to the Canadian Arctic. That never evolved because the US Coast Guard behind closed doors said, are you kidding me? That is a terrible idea backed by a lot of American academics. That is a terrible idea for so many operational and political reasons. So that never actually happened. But that is essentially where that conversation from Pompeo started, uh, with a desire to push the Russian claim, which is different from the Canadian claim, uh, and uh, is not based on uh, international law. Uh, and it sort of evolved and changed into say, well, why don't we pick on the Canadians uh, instead? And that's a very, it's a very, it's a very complex issue, but it, that's, a, that's a bit of an overview of where that came from. Mark, is there anything you wanted to? No, I, yeah. I'll just let I, it with that. I, I just wanted to give you the opportunity, no, knowing that you weren't going to take it. <laughs> There's a question over here. David Martin, Nareva, Coast Guard question. Mm -hmm. Integration, you said, US, Canada, but Finland, yeah. Denmark, mm -hmm. Norway, Sweden. Integration needs to be broader. When we sailed through uh, the Northwest Passage in 2019, there were two members of the Coast Guard, search and rescue, wondering about cruise ships and how to rescue a ship that went aground or another incident. And the speculation at that point was the polar um, uh, icebreaker from Russia would be sooner on the scene than others. What can we do on integrating the response times? Yeah, thanks. A really good question. And maybe I, I failed to you know, expand a little bit more on, on the integration. Um, you know, we are working with the Danish Coast Guard. We are working with some of our Arctic states. Um, and, and they're also participating in the NUC, um, you, know, uh, you know, in that integration uh, and exercising and information sharing. We are working with them specifically on, you know, what kind of plans through the, the um, the, uh, the Arctic Council um, and the Arctic Coast Guard Forum, which it has like-minded states, and how do we respond and how do we coordinate our efforts in an integrated approach when there are these types of events. So, you know, tabletop exercises have started. The next piece is to actually get large full-scale exercises and have that kind of search and rescue or environmental response event where we can start actually practicing the tactical aspects of, of this kind of integration and coordination. But it, it's, it, I didn't want to necessarily, I only mentioned the US because we were talking about the US, but it, it's much, far, uh, much broader than just the US. And there is a growing interest by NATO. Yes. NATO has made explicit uh, comments to the effect that they want to, uh, they want to engage more in the far north, which is code for the Arctic. Um, I'm going to wrap it up, Dave, because I desperately need to pee. So unless you, <laughs> unless you want to take over the panel, um, uh, I got to go. <laughs> Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like your stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaiica support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa. And thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed. <laughs>